Cairo, Seattle. Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, Molly Weisenberg and Matthew Amster Burton, hosts of the culinary comedy podcast, Spilled Milk. Well, I have a bottle of Worcestershire sauce. Matthew, I have one too, and I, I have a big surprise to share about this. Okay. When I pulled it out, I started thinking about, I don't remember buying this. Like, I wonder how long I've had it. Are you ready? I'm ready. This is Best Buy 03-08. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I bought it at least 13 years ago. Yeah, you were a child. What I were you even thinking? What does a baby years- need with Worcestershire? Molly is the author of three books, two food memoirs, and a brand new memoir about sexuality, family, and love called The Fixed Stars. She's also the co-founder of popular Seattle restaurants Delancey, and Dino's. And Matthew is the author of five books, including the memoir Pretty Good Number One, An American Family Eats in Tokyo, and a YA novel called Our Secret Better Lives. And I've read seven out of eight of their books, and I recommend every single one of them, except for the one that I haven't read yet. Two guests means two last meals, so we have a lot of culinary ground to cover in this episode. First, we're going to learn the history of chocolate malts. I just have so many happy memories of drinking chocolate malts from Brahms with my dad on a hot, hot, hot and very humid Oklahoma day. That's Molly. We'll pay a visit to Brahms Ice Cream and Dairy Store in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And beverage connoisseur Darcy O'Neill will share the history of old-timey soda fountains, which were inside every American pharmacy in the 1880s. Then we talk Okonomiyaki with Yoko Kumano and Kayoko Akabori, co-owners of Umami Mart in Oakland, California. The sweet Okonomiyaki sauce with the Kewpie mayo, it's it's a very distinct, sharp flavor. When I was pregnant, I definitely craved that tangy sauce all of the time. And last but not least, legendary Italian chef, cooking show host, and cookbook author, Lydia Bastianich will tell us how to make the perfect pot of cacio e pepe. So where are you located right now? Where are you at? I am in New York, Queens, with my mother, who is 99. So she quarantined, tried to keep her distance from everybody and tried to keep her fed. By the time the 36 minutes are up, or however long this episode is going to be, you're going to be craving a strange combination of cheesy pasta, savory Japanese pancakes, and chocolate malts. But first, my conversation with Molly and Matthew from Spilled Milk. So you guys have been a podcast for 10 years. That is so long for a podcast. It's unbelievably long. It, I, I mean, I think neither of us can believe that mm-hmm. we have gotten away with this for 10 years. So when you started it, did you already listen to podcasts? How did you even think to start this? So it was Matthew's idea. We have to give Matthew all the credit because the truth is, even though I think I had listened to maybe a like episode of This American Life uh, on my phone at that point, I think I didn't know what podcasts were. And I think I thought they were for dorky people. 
Um, I had listened to several comedy podcasts. I knew that they were for dorky people. And <laughs> so I wanted to do one. And so I like, I'm like, I'm not going to sit and do it myself. So I'm going to email my funny friend, Molly, who wasn't really even my friend yet and say, let's start a podcast together. And I had just been laid off from gourmet magazine because it went out of business. And I'm like, oh, I need to start a new thing. Maybe I'll start a podcast. You've been doing this for 10 years. A lot of people think that you're married, which you are not, or dating, which you are not. Is there anything that is a surprise anymore when you do an episode and one of you says something about what you like or you don't like? Or is there anything left to explore between you two? Not a lot, I don't think. But I am always impressed when uh, Molly has not done some really normal thing. What's something you've never made, Molly, that that I was shocked by? It was something recently that I was shocked by. Like two episodes ago that I was like, I can't believe you've never had that. Oh, it was a calzone. I couldn't believe you'd never had a calzone. Yeah, never. It wasn't that Molly had never made a calzone. It was that she had never had a calzone. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So my parents were like quite food snobby for people who lived in Oklahoma in the 80s. So there's just like a lot of like real American home cooking kind of stuff that my parents never made. I can relate. I spent my childhood yearning to be a little Midwestern girl who ate green bean casserole and stovetop stuffing on Thanksgiving. And I also spent my whole childhood wishing I could eat TV dinners and actually eat them in front of the TV. So uh, when we would go to the grocery store, I'd go to the frozen food aisle and walk down the TV dinner aisle like I was at Tiffany's or Bloomingdale's and actually like run my hand along the glass and just dream about what I would choose if I was actually allowed to live in this world. Uh, High on the list was Stouffer's Mac and Cheese, which to this day, I still have never had. Molly, what would your last meal be? Oh, man. No, I want Matthew to go first. Um, Okay. Last meal. I think maybe um, the pasta dish called Cacio e Pepe which is pasta dressed in sort of a, like an emulsified sauce of pecorino, a little bit of pasta cooking water. Some people use a little bit of butter with lots of freshly cracked black pepper. So cacio e pepe. I think I might have like a really, really good green salad, maybe with butter lettuce, maybe. Um, I definitely would work a chocolate malted milkshake in there somewhere. I think there would be a really good ripe nectarine really good ripe nectarine and definitely some wine. So for you, is this just food that you find really delicious or is there any significance behind any of these items for you? Oh, no, no. Just foods I find delicious. If this is my last meal, I just want to make sure it's delicious. It doesn't have to mean anything. What about you, Matthew? Are you looking for meaning in a last meal? Maybe a little bit. So for for my last meal, I want us to go to, and, and you're both invited, a restaurant in Tokyo called Penguin Village that serves okonomiyaki, which is like a savory pancake that has a bunch of cabbage in it. And you cook it yourself on a griddle that's at your table. So to picture this restaurant, it is probably the most casual restaurant in the world. You take your shoes off on the way in. It's like a small, like one-story building. Uh, The owners are these two handsome middle-aged brothers who are super into Japanese professional wrestling. And that is the decor. And you flip open this menu that is tattered from all the people flipping through it before. And you choose what you want in your savory pancake. And one of the guys will bring you over a bowl full of ingredients that you stir up and slap it onto this hot griddle. 
it gives you something to do with your hands, you know, and something to focus on if the conversation lags a little bit. The food is delicious. It always takes longer to cook than you expect and you get really hungry, which is... And really hot. And really hot. really hot next to that griddle. And so I want one of those pancakes. I want some yakisoba noodles. And to drink, I want a lemon sour, which is uh, shochu liquor, like cheap liquor uh, with freshly squeezed lemon juice and soda. Okay, this is a dumb question, I know, because I lived in Japan for a year and I understand that the name of a restaurant doesn't mean anything. (laughs) But why is it called Penguin Village? I do not know the answer. There is there is like a cartoon of a penguin outside the door, but like none of the other decor is penguin related at all. And it's, uh, you know, it's Penguin Village. Like I wrote about this place in, in, a, in a book that I published a few years ago, and uh, I described uh, one of the brothers as looking like a Japanese Patrick Swayze. He's a very Ooh. handsome guy. And like the next time I went in, like a couple years later, pulled out a copy of my book and said, did you say I looked like Patrick Swayze? And like was <laughs> genuinely offended by this comparison. I'm oh, like, no. What is going on? <laughs> We're still friends. Did you have to tell him how hot Patrick Swayze is? Did you have to just like give this whole explanation and like show I... him parts of ghosts and then get behind him and bring in a pottery wheel and put your hands and and whisper in his ear? Ditto. That's pretty much what happened, only instead of a pottery wheel, it was a hot griddle. And actually, so the first time I went to this place, that guy taught me how to make an okonomiyaki at the table because I had no idea what I was doing. I'd never eaten it before, let alone made it. And then on our most recent trip, I was like, I had made one kind of lopsided and knew it was going to be difficult to flip. And I called him over and said, "Uh, can you help me flip this, please? And he's like, no. Salty Patrick Swayze. For her last meal, Molly wants cacio e pepe, a green salad with butter lettuce, a chocolate malted milkshake, a perfectly ripe nectarine, and a glass of wine. For his last meal, Matthew wants okonomiyaki from Penguin Village in Tokyo, yakisoba, and a lemon sour cocktail. So there's a segment at the beginning of every episode of Spilled Milk. It's called Memory Lane. And this is where Matthew and Molly talk about their first experience, their earliest memories of the food or dish that they're focusing on that day. Okay, so I'm going to mimic what you do on your podcast and make you go down memory lane for your last meals. So Matthew, what is your memory lane of yakisoba, okonomiyaki, and the drink that I already forgot what it's called? (laughs) It's got a lemon sour, lemon chew high. It all goes back to my my first real trip to Japan with my family in 2012, and I was I was working on a book about uh, kind of everyday Japanese food, especially like cheap restaurant food, and uh, so okonomiyaki was a thing on my list that I was a little bit scared to try because I knew you cook it yourself. I didn't know how to do that, and especially I didn't know how to order it, and so I you know kind of. Google mapped like what are what's an okonomiyaki place near our apartment and ended up at Penguin Village and was basically immediately adopted by uh, these, these the Oda brothers um, who taught us how to make okonomiyaki. And we've been going in there like once every two years ever since. And they always remember us and welcome us. Molly, let's go down memory lane with your last meal. Okay, I think I'm going to go down memory lane for the the chocolate malt because so I grew up in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, which is you know, it's it's close to a lot of places that are known for good food, like Kansas City Barbecue or like Austin Barbecue. Oklahoma is sort of known for waving wheat. Um, but anyway, there is a really great place there called, Matthew knows what I'm going to say. It's called Brahms Ice Cream and Dairy Stores. It's like a scoop shop. Plus they sell big jugs of milk. <laughs> 
Big jugs. Why do I say jugs? <laughs> <laughs> they sell. All right, I'm going to go back here. No, don't, don't. <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, so um, Brahms makes a really good chocolate malt. When I was a kid, my dad used to take me to Brahms. This was like a thing we did together, and we would get a chocolate malt. He would ask for it with extra malt. Anyway, I just have so many happy memories of eating chocolate malts or drinking chocolate malts from Brahms with my dad on a hot, 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 and very humid Oklahoma day. When we come back, we'll learn the fascinating history of the malted milkshake, which was pretty much considered a medicine and a health food in the 1880s. Molly wants a chocolate malted from Brahms Ice Cream and Dairy Store, which opened its first shop in Oklahoma City in 1968. Today, there are 300 shops in five states, but it's still family-owned and operated. The Brahms menu reads kind of like a family-owned Dairy Queen. There are burgers and fries, there's ice cream sundaes, and of course, milkshakes and malts. But the thing that impressed me about Brahms is that they actually raise their own cows so that they can have the freshest milk. They do everything themselves from top to bottom. So we do everything from the cows all the way to baking our own buns that we serve in the restaurant on our burgers. That's Brahms PR manager, Amanda Bouchard. We grow our own crops to feed our cows and to supplement when they're not out grazing in the fields. So we control everything they eat. That way we know exactly what's affecting the taste of the milk. Amanda says the milk is never more than 36 hours from cow to store. Okay, so what is a malt? A malt, or a malted, is the same as a milkshake, but with the addition of malted milk powder, which is a mixture of malted barley, wheat flour, and milk powder. What does it mean to malt something? I mean, you're just dumping the powder in to the milkshake? Yeah, you just dump the powder in, but um, what it means to malt something? So they take a grain, like barley, and they germinate it, which forms enzymes and sugars. And back in the day, they believed that those enzymes would help with digestion. Of course, malted grains are also used to make beer and grain alcohols and this malted milk powder that goes into milkshakes to transform them into malts. So the malted milk powder was originally created by a company called Horlicks, and it was created as a health food, kind of like a supplement for a very specific population. It started off with babies and invalids and people who couldn't take care of themselves. So malted barley has alpha amylase enzyme. And the idea was that this enzyme would help break down the wheat and make it available and nutritious. What time in history was this? Uh, This was 1870s. That's Darcy O'Neill. He's creator of the website Art of Drink. And he wrote a book about the history of soda fountains called Fix the Pumps, which is exactly where the malted milkshake was born. But before there were malts, there were milkshakes. The original milkshake was actually just shaken milk. And that's where the name came from. And that happened somewhere in 18, 1884 or somewhere around there. Then they're usually a combination of milk and eggs. Then they started adding syrups, whether it's vanilla, chocolate, or strawberry. And then they started making them frothy by adding soda water to uh, fluff it up. And they would just shake it vigorously for a minute. 
And then you'd get this frothy drink, and that was actually the milkshake. To keep prices down, Darcy says the eggs were eventually removed and the expensive cream was replaced with milk. But the ice cream base that we see today only evolved because refrigeration wasn't big back then, so they would freeze the cream and then blend it with soda water. And the idea was that the frozen cream would chill the soda water instead of adding ice because ice wasn't that common. So these things have changed or evolved over time. Milkshakes were originally served in pharmacies that were divided into two sections, pharmacy on one side, soda fountain on the other. But unlike the 1950s soda fountains that you see in movies, these were quite luxe. They like this idea of onyx and Tiffany lamps and gold gilding, and it's been like a phenomenal amount of money to make their pharmacist look professional, expensive, like competing with some of the top bars in the world at the time. Uh, because again, pharmacists wanted to attract people that import marble from Italy. How did those two businesses collide? How did you end up with ice cream and milkshakes and sundaes inside a place that was selling medicine and drugs. So if you go back in history like a thousand years, natural mineral springs were considered healthy. People would go there to bathe and drink the water, and the water was clean compared to what would be in like a city in the 1600s, which was full of cholera and other diseases. They decided to start bottling these spring waters, and people would buy it as a health tonic. So then the pharmacists would sell the water, so they used to bottle right at the springs in Europe. But it was too expensive to transport it to North America. So the chemists just took the salt analysis and created their own. And then pharmacists started making the water right in their pharmacies. And then somebody got the creative idea, and it's about 1836, that they added lemon syrup to soda water. And then this became the first soda. So lemon soda was the actual first soda fountain drink. And then they just started adding more flavors to attract more customers and using the soda flavors to cover up the bad taste of medicines. Back in the 1800s, they didn't have pills. Uh, everything was provided in liquid form and medicine was quite bitter. So they just covered up with soda fountain syrups and mix it in with soda. Oh, so does that mean that you would take your dose in the pharmacy and buy this drink to cover it up? You'd have your medicine at the pharmacy. Soda fountains didn't have stools. The idea was that you drank it quickly and left. So you'd rarely spend more than five minutes in a soda fountain. Cocaine was really big at pharmacies in the 1880s. So that's where Coca-Cola came from. And they used to call it brain food because it would perk you up and make you very productive. So you used to be able to go get a soda and the pharmacist would just dose in a small amount of cocaine, usually about like five milligrams, which is a really small amount. That's what you'd have in the morning is your pick-me-up. Wow. Coca-Cola was invented in a pharmacy? Yes. Invented in Atlanta in about 1885 by a pharmacist. It contained cocaine, so the coca, and cola nut, which is the cola. It was originally a medicine. It was served as a syrup, and they'd mix it in with soda water. Coca-Cola's inventor, John Pemberton, was a biochemist and a Confederate Army veteran. He claimed that Coca-Cola could cure morphine addiction, which is something that he suffered from, indigestion, nerve disorders, headaches, and impotence. Yay, Coca-Cola. 
Now, it was around this time that bitters and malted syrups were added to drinks to help promote digestion. Darcy says people were very concerned with digestion in the 1880s. And so how did it go from these tonics and medicine cover-ups to just straight-up ice cream? In 1906, the, the Pure Food and Drug Act came out. This was the first time food and drugs were regulated in the United States. And eventually, this led to the creation of the Food and Drug Administration. The new law required that drug labels list addictive ingredients, like opiates. And with the new labeling, drug sales plummeted. So pharmacies had to find another way to make money. They started selling more soda fountain stuff. And that's when the Sundays started becoming popular and the banana split. And then prohibition hit. So when you take alcohol out of the equation, people still had cravings and stuff. So the luncheon counter became popular because people are coming in for their medicine and they might as well have something to eat or be tempted by ice cream treats. By the 1950s, Darcy said medicine became more complicated and pharmacists felt like the soda fountain was just in the way. So the soda fountains left the pharmacies and milkshakes and sundaes found a new home in diners. But malt was still kind of considered a medicine, so a lot of places just never served it. And Darcy thinks that's why milkshakes are more common than malts are today, which I definitely find to be true. I went online looking for places in Seattle, well, in my neighborhood because I was being lazy, uh, that sell malted milkshakes. And it was way easier to find milkshakes at, you know, ice cream parlors and at burger places, uh, but not very many places did malts. And I had to find a place because I had never had a malt before. Uh, when I was a kid, I didn't like Whopper candies, and I still don't. So I never had an interest in trying a malt until now. Can you describe the flavor of the malt? It's kind of a hard flavor to describe, but it goes really well with chocolate for some reason. It's not quite the beer flavor. It's almost more like sweet, but the, the flavor's bready. Um, but not like bread. Malty is about the only term I can come up with yeah. <laughs> uh, to describe it. Amanda from Brahms also took a crack at it. I don't know what the exact flavor you would call it. It's a very distinctive flavor. Um, if you've had Whoppers, you know that the Whoppers taste very much... I, I don't even know what the correct word would be, but they are very they have their own very distinct flavor. It's really hard to describe. <laughs> Determined to be able to paint a word picture of what a malted tastes like, my boyfriend and I went to Burgermaster for a malt. Now, Burgermaster is the perfect place to go during quarantine because you never get out of your car even during normal times. It's super fun. It's very old school. You drive up uh, to a little parking spot and then you turn on your lights to indicate that you want service. And then a server comes out and takes your order right at your car window. Uh, so we got a chocolate malt and then a chocolate milkshake so we could compare the flavors. It's thick. It's hard to get a sip. I have to say, it tastes just like a milkshake. I barely taste a difference. I wonder if some places use more malt powder than others. Because it tastes just slightly less sweet than yours. But if I didn't know any better, I would have no idea. Guess we're gonna have to go somewhere else and get a second one. I asked for a side of malt powder to see if I could really malt it up. But first I'm gonna taste it on its own. It weirdly doesn't have a smell. Oh, it has a taste. <laughs> it has a taste, but it just tastes sweet. I put in like maybe a tablespoon extra of the malt powder. It's very clumpy. Yeah, I can't tell the difference. But that doesn't mean it wasn't delicious. I like the drink, but I just 
really couldn't tell that much of a difference. So a few days later, producer Laura and I... Hello. Hello. <laughs> uh, I dragged her along on another malt mission. Uh, and what did we order? We ordered strawberry and chocolate. Strawberry, well, we were like debating if we should get vanilla for research purposes, but then we decided we really just wanted a chocolate malt. So, yeah, And we get what we want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we tried a chocolate and a strawberry, and I felt the same way. I could hardly tell that there was malt in it. It didn't taste strongly like a Whopper like I thought that it would. I was so convinced that I was tasting it on the strawberry. And then the second I tried the chocolate, nothing. I couldn't taste it at all. And then I questioned everything. Did I really just, you know, placebo affect myself on the strawberry? Who knows? Who knows? Um, All I know is, is that they usually charge you like 39 cents, 50 cents extra. And I think this is America's greatest scam (laughs) to get 45 cents out of you for malt. When you can't even taste anything. Darcy says if you want a truly malty experience, you should go to a beer supply store and buy some pure malt powder so you can make your own malt with ice cream and milk and malt powder. Uh, That way it won't be cut with the milk powder and it will have a stronger, more pure malt flavor. Okay, time for a quick break. But when we come back, are you a fan of cooking your own food at a restaurant? When you order okonomiyaki in Japan, you're often responsible for making your own. And then Lydia Bastianich joins the show to share the history of the original Italian macaroni and cheese. For his last meal, Matthew wants okonomiyaki. Okonomiyaki is, I think of it as a savory pancake. That's Kayoko Akabori, co-owner of Umami Mart in Oakland, California. They sell Japanese pantry items, a huge selection of sake, shochu, and Japanese whiskey, and all kinds of really beautiful Japanese kitchenware. The main ingredients are flour, egg, water for the batter, and then you just toss in some cabbage. Uh, Usually there's green onions in there. And then pork belly is one of the main proteins that are in there. It's very simple. Uh, It originated in Osaka. It's definitely a staple there. There's a lot of okonomiyaki shops. Um, It's delicious, very cheap, very fun, like late night, drunken nights sort of food. The fun or terrifying thing about okonomiyaki is that you usually cook it yourself on a hot grill right at your table. It gets nice and crispy on the outside, and it's soft and pillowy inside. And then you finish off the whole thing with zigzags of kewpie mayo and okonomiyaki sauce. Must-have condiments and toppings would be the okonomiyaki sauce, the sweeter version of tonkatsu sauce, katsuobushi, which is dried bonito flakes on top, aonori, which is uh, seaweed. Um, You can also add some pickled ginger. Um, I've seen variations where you can put on Mentaiko on top, which is spicy cod roe. The Hiroshima style has yakisoba inside of it, which is a stir-fried noodle dish, which makes it even of a more carb fest, I'd say. I put like seafood inside as well. Uh, Sometimes I'll put oysters in mine or shrimp. There's really no wrong way to make your okonomiyaki of your dreams, I'd say. Hmm. She's right. Technically, there is no wrong way. Okonomi means what you like, and yaki means cooked. So you pretty much can do whatever the fudge you want. 
The dish became popular after World War II when there was a rice shortage. So people turned to wheat and started making these pancakes. I lived in Japan about 10, 11 years ago. And one of the best things about Japan is that they take food very seriously. People there love to eat and it's hard to get a bad meal at a restaurant. And as Umami Mart's co-owner Yoko Kumano explains, it's not uncommon to spend an entire evening restaurant hopping. So with my experience when I lived in Tokyo, I would mainly just go to a place that has okonomiyaki after you have your dinner. So, you know, that's another thing about Japan, right? You hop. You don't just go to one place and have your dinner. You go to several places. This place has a really good sake list, so I'm going to go here first. And then I'm going to go to the yakitori place because I love their liver. Um, I'm just going to get a few skewers there. And then at the end of the night, I'm going to shime or close it up with some carbs with, at the okonomiyaki place. So there are izakaya for sure that have okonomiyaki on the menu, but to get that full okonomiyaki experience, I would recommend going to a place that specializes in okonomiyaki. One place that takes okonomiyaki specialization to a new level is Okonomiyaki Mura in Hiroshima. Like Kayako mentioned earlier, Hiroshima-style okonomiyaki has a layer of yakisoba. They go straight up double carb with a layer of stir-fried noodles inside. And when I was living in Japan, I traveled to Hiroshima almost exclusively to try this okonomiyaki. And it's this skinny high-rise building with about 25 okonomiyaki restaurants inside of it. It's basically just a tower of okonomiyaki. And so you'd get off the elevator and there would be these okonomiyaki stalls that were just all open with stools up at the counter. And there'd be three or four on each floor. So we would just go up and down the elevator, get off and and eat. So we ate at three of them before we got too full. But wouldn't that be awesome if we had more of those here? It's like pizza tower. Like a food court with all one theme. Yeah, I guess you're right. I guess, yeah, it is a food court with one food only. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it is. I guess variety does sound a little bit more appealing, but this was so novel. It was just, it was really fun. Normally, I only focus on one or two elements of a last meal, but Molly also wants cacio e pepe, uh, which is so delicious and kind of a hot dish right now in the United States. Uh, So I decided to look into the history of it. So cacio e pepe is only four ingredients, some kind of long strands of pasta like spaghetti or bucatini, lots and lots of finely grated pecorino cheese, uh, freshly grated black pepper, and the fourth ingredient is the hot starchy pasta water that you cook the pasta in and that is used to emulsify the cheesy sauce and purists will not add butter or olive oil it is just these four ingredients joining us now to talk about cacio e pepe is one of the country's most beloved italian chefs hi i'm lydia bastianich chef cookbook author cooking show host, uh, mother, grandmother, and so on. Lydia says cacio e pepe is Rome's original pasta dish. It was originally made with tonarelli, or spaghetti alla citara, a sort of square-shaped spaghetti from the Abruzzo region. This recipe, it's in the hills of Rome, actually, is where it's Roman now, but it was up where the pastori, they used to take their sheep up in the hills, the seven hills of Rome, and they would go up in the spring and stay up there all spring, all summer, and then come down back in the valleys when winter came. And so, you know, they had the sheep, they had the milk, 
and they made cheese up there. They made ricotta, they made cheese, and this is the dish that they ate. They had their cheese, they boiled their pasta, and they whipped it up, you know, in the sauce, and uh, I guess fresh pepper they had, and that was the meal because tomatoes only came to Italy after the discovery from Columbus. You know, before that, pasta in Rome had no tomatoes, this kind of white sauce, if you will. So this is one of those recipes that go really back to the source, to those uh, sheep herders. And to this day, the purity of this dish is just uh, the intensity of flavor and the harmony of flavor is just wonderful. And these were nomadic herders. So was this a meal that was like a campfire meal in a way? Absolutely. That's what it was. Do you know around what time period this was in? After what? The tomatoes came to Italy after 14th, whatever. So let's say 15th. So it was before. It could have been the 1200s, the 1300s, the 1400s, you know. But, you know, that's how cheese was invented originally. The shepherds were out there and the extra milk that they had, they made cheese so that they can carry it back home. Cheese was their meal. It is so simple, but I have had trouble making the dish without the cheese just sticking to the pot and getting really clumpy. And I found that it's a little bit challenging to get a really smooth sauce that just coats the noodles and doesn't just stick to the pot. Right. If you go now to the pistachio, the old butcher area of Rome, and you go in those trattorias, they bring out the pasta steaming just out of cooking, not in the pan, in a ceramic bowl, and they have a little bit of water in there, and they add the cheese and mix it right in there with a fork and a a spoon, toss it, mix it, until it sort of smooths up and makes this creamy sauce. The pot is not the most ideal place, especially because the pot is hot and it melts the cheese and it does those stringiness. The quality of the cheese is extremely important. You know, a cacio is a pecorino that is aged, sheep's milk, that is aged about six months. And so it's crumbly. You have to buy the right cacio. It has to be grated. And then take the pasta out, put it in a bowl. The bowl should, should not be cold. It should be warm, but it's not going to be as hot as the pot. And you put the pasta in there and you put a little bit of the pasta water, don't drain the pasta completely, save a little pasta water just in case, and then you begin to twirl. Twirl this pasta, add the cheese, and twirl it and twirl it and mix it, mix it around, mix it. You continue mixing it, and that's it. And the the cheese is going to slowly get creamy. If if it's a little sticky, you add a little bit of the water, and you just mix it, and it's done. And the whole thing takes, you know, five minutes, yes or no. So don't overdo it. Molly and Matthew are best friends. I say it in the best friend tone. Uh, I want to buy the best friend necklaces like I had in fourth grade. They have done this podcast together for a decade. They have traveled the world together. So I wanted to see just how well they know each other. I did not prepare this, so I'm going to try to do it on the fly. I want to do kind of a how well do you know each other quiz. And since I did not newlywed game. Yes, exactly. But since I didn't have you write down answers, you know, ahead of time, it won't be so (laughs) scientific. So you're just going to have to be honest about it. And I'm going to think of these on the fly. 
So, Matthew, Molly talks a lot about the fact that she studied abroad in France and she had a host mother. And this comes up all the time. Do you know what her host mother's name is? I think she's mentioned it on the show, but I can't remember. Molly, do you remember? (laughs) Yes, I do. Her name was Corentine. I don't think I knew that. Anyway, yes, Corentine was her name. That's hard to remember. And now, and ironically, now she's in Corentine. (laughs) Oh my God. Oh. Oh. Okay. Uh, Hold on. Give me one, Rachel. Ooh, okay. Matthew has been in bands in the past. Can you name one of Matthew's bands that he's been in? I can name two of them. Okay, go ahead. Flax and Cat Slint Trap. (laughs) Those are both absolutely correct. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) I win. To be fair, I think that was an easier question. I think so, too. But now we'll never forget your host mom's name because of what we're all in right (laughs) now. And that was Matthew Amster Burton and Molly Weisenberg's Last Meal. New episodes of their podcast, Spilled Milk, come out every Thursday. Each episode focuses on a single food. So they might talk about soft pretzels one episode or candy canes or an ingredient like miso. Make sure and pick up their books, including Molly's new one, The Fixed Stars. It is about an experience that happened to me when I was 36 that I I kind of didn't know could happen to a grown adult, which is that I was married to a man. I had always understood myself to be straight. I had a young child and I had an experience that basically kind of shifted everything for me. And I, I no longer felt that I was straight. Um, And this made me feel really, really lost because at that point I've been married for almost a decade and um, thought I knew myself pretty well. So um, the book is is about my trying to understand sort of um, what a self is if it is something that can change so much Uh, and trying to understand what I am or who I am if who I am is so variable over time. Thanks to the malt master, Darcy O'Neill. Check out his website. It's Art of Drink. Thanks to Amanda Bouchaw. She is the PR manager for Brahms Ice Cream and Dairy. Thanks to Yoko Kumano and Kayoko Akabori, co-owners of Umami Mart in Oakland, California. Their shop has moved to online sales during quarantine. They ship everywhere in the country, and they even sell an Okonomiyaki pack that has been quite popular. Special thanks to Lydia Bastianich. You can find links to her books, her TV show, some recipes at lydiasitaly.com. That's L-I-D-I-A. And it's worth it to go to the website just to see this gorgeous picture that's right there on the front page of Lydia with her 99-year-old mother, who she lives with, and who she has been cooking three meals a day for during quarantine. And I couldn't let Lydia go without asking her about her last meal. I love really a good linguine clam sauce. Uh, I could have a nice plate of linguine clam sauce and then go to heaven. And finish it maybe with a nice juicy peach and some prosecco with some mint leaves. Simple and uh, this will take you straight to heaven. This episode was produced by Laura Scott and me. Theme music by Prom Queen. And if you're feeling nice, if you're in a good mood, give us a review. Just tap out five stars or write a sweet little review on your podcast player. It is just the two of us that run this show. So the more reviews we get, the greater the chance that Apple Podcasts will feature the show and attract new listeners. 
If you're not already following along on Instagram, we're Your Last Meal Podcast. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. Your Last Meal.